Well, good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. To the angel at the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be my hurt by the second death. This is the word of God. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, as we now consider these words written from Jesus so long ago, help us to hear and to understand and apply them to our own life. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, on August 1st, 2007, my grandparents, who live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, they, well, they live just outside of Minneapolis, they had to run into the city to do a few errands, which meant that they would be crossing the mighty Mississippi River twice. And on both occasions that day, they used the I-35W bridge. It's a 1,900-foot-long, 10-story-high, eight-lane-across bridge, a truss bridge built to bear the heaviest of loads. And in 2007, that bridge was 40 years old. Well, I remember when they called us a few hours after getting home because they were shocked at what they were seeing on the news. At 6.05 p.m., the height of rush hour traffic, when people who were leaving their jobs, who had traveled along that bridge thousands of times before, suddenly found themselves not only in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, but in a very fatal and dangerous situation. 
I'm sure some of you remember it. On August 1st, 2007, with 111 cars on the bridge, it suddenly collapsed under the weight. 147 people were injured. 13 people lost their lives. If you go and kind of look up some of the survivor accounts, it's pretty crazy to read about. One woman by the name of Lindsay Waltz, she was in the middle of the bridge when it happened. She said she had her radio on, her air conditioning running, and she suddenly heard a loud clang. And before she could kind of register what was happening, her car was filling with water. And by the time her car rested at the bottom of the Mississippi River, she didn't know how she was going to get out. And she doesn't remember how she got out. Another man by the name of Andy Gannon was further along on the bridge. And he said he was also listening to the radio when he could hear the mechanical failings take place. Bolts being sheared, asphalt being torn, metal just snapping under the load. He said all of a sudden he was thinking to himself, this isn't good, I need to get off. But there was nowhere to go. And a wave of concrete and steel came bearing down. He thought for sure his life was over. What makes this all the more tragic is that four years earlier, on a safety inspection, an engineer had flagged a troublesome spot on the bridge. On a truss bridge, the strongest point is the joint. But even though it's the strongest point, there are extra precautions taken. On either side, they put an inch-thick steel plate called a gusset plate and they put hundreds of bolts in it. Engineers have been trained for years to think that gussets never fail. This man doing the safety inspection took a picture of two plates in particular that had started to bend. When his superiors looked at the photos, they said, gussets never fail. When they looked at the photos, they assumed that it was cosmetic damage that had taken place when the bridge was first erected. And so they ignored it. There are dire consequences for missing a warning. And that's the dynamic that's at play in Revelation chapter 2. As we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation, we come to chapters 2 and 3, which are comprised of seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Each of these letters are written from the Lord Jesus, and they all follow somewhat of a similar pattern. He identifies himself to them. He gives them some sort of encouragement or some sort of warning. He explains that he knows exactly what's going on in their church at the time that it's being written. And then he encourages all those who hear what these letters say that they would listen and that they would follow his instruction. That phrase at the end of each of these letters where it says, let him who has ear hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches is also a reminder to us. These are not just written to Ephesus and Smyrna and Laodicea and Philadelphia and the other churches mentioned. These are written to Providence Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas in 2023. So let's look at just a few of these churches this morning. First, we start with Ephesus, 
we know a whole lot of context about the church at Ephesus. It was kind of like the mothership of churches in Asia Minor. It's where Paul had established his ministry for the longest time. He was there for three years preaching and teaching every single day. But prior to Paul, this church has quite a pedigree. They had Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, all ministering there. Paul comes along. After Paul, we have Timothy, Paul's disciple. Then Tychius. And after Tychius, John the Apostle, who writes the book of Revelation, he was a minister at this church. And so when the book of Revelation is being written, the church is only 40 years old. It's a young church. And Jesus, who's writing to them, says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. This is in verse two. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. He says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you have not grown weary. See, when Paul arrived at Ephesus, it was one of the most pagan cities in all the world. It was a beautiful harbor city on the Mediterranean Sea and it was home to one of seven great wonders of the world, the temple that had been built to Artemis, a massive temple complex. And people from all over that region had moved to Ephesus and started their businesses so that it would relate to the worship at the temple. And so when the church arrives, when Paul is there and he is preaching and teaching the gospel, if you go back in Acts 19, you see that the church starts to dramatically grow. And as that happens, the culture begins to change in Ephesus. And these people who had started their businesses there their work started to kind of run dry. Luke says that people were coming to faith in such dramatic ways that they were bringing their books that had been dedicated to witchcraft and divination and burning them in the streets as public professions of faith in the Lord Jesus. As they confessed their sins and turned from their old ways. Scholars estimate it was one to five million dollars worth of books being burned at the time. So you can imagine the persecution these Christians started to receive when people's livelihoods were beginning to be affected. Demetrius the silversmith in Acts 19, he raises up a riotous crowd to drive Paul out of the city. But the church at Ephesus remained faithful they did not compromise with the culture of the world around them. They weren't going to give in. And shortly after, when Timothy takes over as head of the church, Paul's imprisoned. And if you remember, Paul writes two letters to Timothy. In both letters, he warns the church. He says, be aware of false teachers and false apostles. Don't give them the time of day. Don't let them teach or preach their false truth. And the church at Ephesus took it seriously. And that's why when we read what Jesus is saying, he knows about these churches. When we read that he's telling them, I know how you have worked hard, how you have toiled, how you have defended the faith, have you, how you have upheld biblical truth. But there's a serious flaw that you're missing. 
one so dangerous that inch by inch it could lead to your destruction, much like the bridge in Minnesota. Look at verse 4. Jesus gives this warning. He says, I have this against you, Ephesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. While you've been busy, he's saying, while you've been busy upholding the truth and defending the faith, you've begun, you've begun to neglect that which is most important. You've stopped cultivating your love for me and for one another. That's how one translation likes to put it. They say, Jesus is saying, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. And the consequence is extremely serious. In verse 5, Jesus says, Remember, therefore, what you have fallen from, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Meaning, if not, this church, its doors will be closed. Your witness in the city of Ephesus will be snuffed out. A serious, serious consequence. But if they repent, there's a promise. At the end of verse 7, the promise is to the one who conquers, I will grant to each to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Echoing back to Genesis. Being with him in the cool of the day in paradise. If you love him, then that is where you want to be. Well, we will come back in just a minute to the church of Ephesus, but let's move on to this church in Smyrna. Example number two from the seven churches and these seven letters. Smyrna is known as faithful. It's one of only two churches of the seven that Jesus has nothing negative to say about it. It's 50 miles away from Ephesus. It's also located as a harbor city uh, on, in the Mediterranean area, on the Aegean Sea, and it was absolutely beautiful. People called it the crown of Asia Minor. So if we were to go back in time and we could get in a boat and be on the coast and look up at Smyrna, you would see it was a city built at the base of a mountain. And its white stone buildings and white stone walls looked like a crown. Absolutely gorgeous. Very affluent. It was, a, it was a wonderful city, but it was also loyal to Rome above all other cities in Asia Minor. From the earliest of days, it had built a temple to the goddess Roma. And so it makes sense now as we start to read what Jesus has to say to this church in particular. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are spiritually rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they were Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. In AD, 81 to 96, Domitian was the emperor of Rome. And he had issued a decree that all people in the Roman Empire were to stop calling Jesus Lord and God. He alone, Domitian alone, the, C the Caesar himself, was to be called Lord and God. People were to worship him, sacrifice to him. They were to make offerings to him on a regular basis. And if not, 
there would be serious trouble. And so these Christians in Smyrna who were so faithful refused to bend the knee. They would not give in to the culture around them. And therefore, they suffered greatly. They were persecuted for their faithfulness and love to Jesus Christ. Their reputations were slandered by those who hated them. And on top of that, they had become impoverished. One of the consequences of being faithful to Jesus in this day meant that people would not buy from you, nor would they sell to you. These Christians in Smyrna were giving up everything to follow him. Not only were they giving up their livelihoods, but look at what Jesus says next in verse 10. Do not fear. Be courageous for what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death and you will receive the crown of Smyrna. You will receive the crown of life. So what Jesus is saying to these Christians is that you're about to experience the worst of the worst. Being faithful to me might mean you have to lose your life. But guess what? How did Jesus introduce himself at the beginning of this letter in verse 8? He said, I'm the one who died and has come to life. Therefore, I am the one who will give you the crown of life if you are faithful to me unto death. Church history can be helpful and interesting in some of these, in some of these stories and some of these letters. We know for a fact that the church of Smyrna took this letter very, very seriously. Did you know John the Apostle had a disciple who is known as one of the most famous Christian martyrs in all of history? It was a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And in 155 AD, he was 86 years old. He was dragged out of his home brought into the arena and then when the crowd saw that it was him they began to rejoice because they were going to see him lose his life the proconsul of rome begged him to apostatize from the faith he said swear reproach to christ and i will set you free and here was polycarp's response this gives me chills 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He was prepared to die. And the proconsul, seeing that he was prepared to die, said, well, we'll throw you to the lions and they will tear you to pieces. But if you repent, I'll set you free. Polycarp said, do what you will. Finally, he said, since you're not afraid of the sword and you're not afraid of the beast, we'll build a pyre and we will burn you alive. But Polycarp stayed faithful. He said at the very end, he said, what are you waiting for? Do what you will. Why could he 
and the Christians in Smyrna remain so faithful to Christ? I think it's summed up in one word, love. They loved Jesus and his church. They found him to be more precious than their reputation, their comfort, or even their own lives. What was the problem in Ephesus? They had abandoned the love they had at first. The Ephesians could have looked over at their brothers and sisters in Smyrna and been reminded of the importance to never, ever lose your first love. And friends, that warning that was true for Ephesus is true for us today. We are never to lose the love we had at first for Jesus and for one another. What does it look like to lose your love? Here's what Spurgeon says. See if this resonates with you at all. I want to, I don't want this to be like a guilt trip, but I find this immensely convicting. And so I want to be fully transparent with you that this has hit me hard this week because this does fit me like a glove at times. Spurgeon says, when we first loved the Savior, how earnest we were. There was not a single thing in the Bible that we did not think most precious. There was not a command of his that we did not think to be like fine gold or choice silver. But now it has lost its luster. The gold has become dim. Some of the actions which we performed when we were young Christians but just converted, when we look back upon them, they seem to have been like wild and idle tales. Do you remember what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus? I mean, it's all it is is happy thoughts, isn't it? I remember it was like when I, I couldn't go anywhere without taking my Bible just because if I had a free moment, I was genuinely excited to open it up and learn about who Christ is. I remember what it was like to constantly be listening to hymns and Christian music, not because it's what Christians should do, because it made me fall more in love with him. I remember what it was like to be excited about going to anything the church had to offer, to be with the Lord's people, whether it was on the Lord's day or on a weekday when there was a Bible study or just any normal, regular fellowship gathering. I also remember what it was like to want to share my faith with friends who didn't know the Lord, even though I felt like I had no idea what it was I was doing or what it was I was supposed to say. Eager to serve in any way I could. All those things, good things, were things that drove me to love him more. Not because they were Christian duty, but because they were a reflection of how my heart felt for him. Why does our love grow cold over time? There are so many reasons. Last week, Warner Stone took his communicant vows. And part of what I said to Warner was that he's never to let it become rote or routine. 
just going through the motions. Isn't that true for the whole of the Christian life? Aren't we constantly under the threat of letting it become something in which we just turn autopilot on? Like I remember what it was like to go for a long walk just so I could go pray. What is my prayer life like now? Do I say the same things over and over? Is it genuine? Is it true? Or is it just checking the box? Familiarity can also breed complacency in us. The more we come and partake and gather, the easier it is to just kind of grow casual with it. Our busyness and priorities can push things aside. But the reality is, being a Christian, after that honeymoon phase is over, in those early stages when everything is new and exciting, being a Christian can be so much harder than we had ever expected in the beginning. So much harder when we are having to constantly die to ourselves and die to our sin and live for Christ. What about as a church? You know what one of the surefire ways is of us becoming like the church at Ephesus? Becoming cold in our love for Christ and one another? David shared that statistic, that shocking statistic last week, where 33% of evangelical Christians who profess to love and know Jesus also admit that they only attend worship with one another twice a month. This isn't a, you need to be at church and we're keeping track of attendance. That's not, that's not what we're saying. Friends, we are not an institution. We're a family. And if we're a family, then we ought to want to be together. If we don't have love for one another, then we're in danger of losing our first love. It's also easy for us to become distracted with good things like the church of Ephesus did. Are we a conservative church theologically? Do we have good teaching as a church? You know, are our ministers living out their lives the way that they should? Those are all important and good and true things. But this letter is providing us with an opportunity to do real heartfelt introspection about how our love is for Jesus and how it is for one another. If this church is going to stand here on this corner proclaiming the gospel for generations to come, it will only do so because of our love for Jesus and for each other. So what do we do when we feel like our love has grown cold? Jesus tells us back in verse 5, Three R's, nice and easy. Three R's, you know, Elizabeth, my daughter Elizabeth at school this week learned about stop, drop, and roll. It's all I hear at home now, stop, drop, and roll. If there's any glimpse of like a candle or something, she'll say, Nate, or she'll say, Daddy. If something happens, stop, drop, and roll. Jack Meacham last week in our, in our emergency preparedness meeting, does anyone remember what he said the three words were? Run, hide, fight. Jesus says, remember, repent, and return. That's it. 
If you feel like, as a Christian, your love has grown cold, you need to remember your first love. Why you loved him in the very beginning. First John tells us that he loved us before we loved him. And he gave himself for us. When we reflect on that and think about that, and we think about what it was like when we were young Christians and we were passionate about knowing him and making him known and being engaged with him, then it's easy to see where we need to repent for the things that we've let fall by the wayside. And then it's as simple as Nike's slogan, just do it. Return to what you did at first. That's it. It's not going to instantaneously make things better. It's not going to be easy either. But it's just like when you're in the woods and you're building a fire. It starts with a flame and then you have to work at it. You have to provide it with fuel. You have to give it oxygen. You have to be patient with it, but you have to be attentive. We need to be attentive of our hearts. Are we loving Jesus the way we should? Are we loving one another the way we should? Or are we just going through the motions? Ultimately, our greatest motivator is the cross. What Jesus did for us. Chris, he put it so well in the confession of faith. Thinking about the fact that God has shown his love for us in that Christ died for us when we were still sinners. Keep that first and foremost in your life. My prayer for our church, and we'll kind of wrap up here, but my prayer for this church I hope no one ever comes through our doors and walks in and says, man, if ever there was a church that was the frozen chosen, this is it. I hope no one ever says that. I hope when people walk away, I hope when we walk away, we think about one another or people say about us that this is a church, this is a family that takes seriously the greatest commandment that's ever been given. That th those people love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that they love their neighbor as themselves. I was recently back in Minnesota for my grandfather's funeral. I drove across the new I-35W bridge. What do you think those engineers thought as they built the new bridge? They double, triple, quadruple checked everything. It's the most technologically advanced bridge in the world. It's constantly providing live and real feedback for the safety and use of that bridge. Be aware of your heart, checking on it constantly. We are faithful to what we love and hold most dear. May that be Christ and one another. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would take this warning seriously and also that we would be reminded
of the love that you have for us and the love that we had for you from the very beginning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.